Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. John, I'm bracing for impact. This is the episode where all the numbering system that we have established for two seasons is being thrown out the window. Uh, Mostly next episode, but it's because of this episode. This is season two, episode 20, otherwise known as episode 220. We're going to listen to uh, chapter 20 of The Bullet Catch and also chapter 21. Uh, As I explained in our our last uh, meeting, in order to fit all the chapters of The Bullet Catch into a 24-episode season. Two of those episodes are going to have double chapters in them, and this is one of them. It's not going to hurt you in any way. You're going to come out just fine. He's speaking to me, folks. He's not speaking to you. He's speaking to me there. Yeah, so I'm absolutely speaking to Jim. I sent over a brown paper bag. You can find it on your front porch. You can just breathe in and out of that if that'll help. But anyway, so we are going to hear chapters 20 and 21, and we're going to continue our theme of how to build a better magician with a really fascinating guest. Yeah, absolutely. Dan Witkowski, folks, is uh, a local guy here in uh, our nape of the neck, Minneapolis, St. Paul, the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Uh, But Dan, even if you have never seen him, and you probably haven't, you have been touched by the magic of Dan Witkowski. I'm willing to bet. In our lifetime, there may not be a magician with the reach that Dan has had. It's incredible when you talk about what Dan has accomplished. Uh, He's the guy who's responsible for all the magic tricks on the cereal boxes when we were kids. Plus magic at a halftime show at the Super Bowl. He did that twice and a whole lot more. Really, really fascinating guy. Yeah, he, and he's, he's uh, a delight to talk to. Dan founded the company Magiccom, uh, and their tagline is, we invent tomorrow, which always sounds to me like they're putting it off. Uh, we invent tomorrow. But actually, I think I'm saying it wrong. They've done extensive work in product innovation and entertainment for a ton of Fortune 500 companies, including Procter & Gamble, Disney, Coke, General Mills. And as I mentioned, they're responsible for putting about $2 billion premiums in cereal boxes and other products over the years. That's billion with a B. Yeah, we're not exaggerating. That's not hyperbole. That's science is what that is. Ironically, though, uh, when we talked to him, we found out that it was a magic trick in a cereal box that actually got Dan started on his road to magic. When did you first discover magic? You know, the strange thing about this is it was also a magic trick with a cereal box. It was in the early 60s, and Mark Wilson did a, a series, or Kellogg's, of course, who was sponsor, uh, the sponsor of his show, The Magic Land of Alakazam, and he had a balancing Rebo on the back of uh, a Kellogg's Frosted Flakes box, of which years later, Mark gave me a copy that was autographed and we've had it encased in Lucite and the whole thing. Uh, I performed that in kindergarten and got last and I thought, ah, this is it. <laughs> so since kindergarten, that's, that's incredible. L- let's, when did you start performing professionally? Unless that was the professional first debut. Of all, I love Divergent's line. I wasted the first four and a half years of my life. <laughs> so, uh, and I think my first paid show 
was in 1968 at the Minneapolis Public Library. I got $10. Wow. You know, I'm sure I spent many times that on props over the years, but, you know, uh, and, and continued to do so. The library thing, you know, kind of made me think this could be a career. The career has taken a few zigzags over the years, but magic has still been a, a key part of it. And premiums for cereal companies, fast food companies. So what did your act consist of at that point? If, if I came and saw the library show, what sort of stuff would I have seen? I think I did two tricks. I think I did the Chinese sticks and uh, a milk pitcher. Maybe I did a little bit more. I was on the bill. There was a woman who ran the children's uh, department at the Minneapolis Public Library. And she had already booked a magician by the name of Scott Farr went by the name of Great Scott. And so I was added to that show. You know, of course I want a top billing. I said, you know, Dan Woodkowski and Scott So, but it didn't work out that way. You know, I, I had a bad agent at the age of 11. So when it came to performing magic, where did you take that as the years went on after age 11? Well, you know, we, uh, I did the usual route blue and gold Cub Scout banquets and birthday parties. And, you know, uh, there were still club date shows in the, uh, you know, uh, on the weekends and the evenings for corporations. But then we started doing corporate work when I was in high school and the Caterpillar Tractor Company was my first client. And they asked, you know, this naive high school kid, if I could, uh, he pointed to a, uh, uh, a little toy caterpillar tractor and said, you know, could you make something like this appear? And I thought, oh, absolutely, you know, no problem. Well, he was, of course, referring to a full-size caterpillar tractor. And uh, yet we figured, <laughs> we figured out a way. We ultimately, as part of the show, we had a ballet with all of the different caterpillar tractor equipment uh, and doing the moves, I, I don't know if it was Swan Lake or what, but, you know, this heavy equipment doing the, the fancy moves, not in leotards, I will point that out. And we worked for Caterpillar Tractor Company for years. Then we started producing shows for theme parks, you know, Valley Fair here in Minneapolis. We did a lot of Disney shows at both Disneyland and Disney World and yeah. So, so how did you make the, how did you make the transition from a a single magician performing things to a guy who's producing shows that involve lots and lots of people? I was never a great magician, and I'm the I, I'm not the first to I'm the first to admit it. But many people have probably said that beforehand. But I was always pretty good at organizing large groups of people. Give me 5,000 people and I can organize them. I can't find my car keys half the time. <laughs> so, but our biggest claim to fame, uh, after one of the Super Bowl shows we did, we got a call from London uh, for, from British Airways ad agency, and they wanted to do a commercial with 10,000 people in it. And I said, why do you want to do it? Because we can. And that commercial, it was a 90-second commercial. This is before, you know, the, you could have done it all with a computer now, but we actually had 10,000 people. It was shot all over the world. And 
because again, an airline was the client. So, so I would get these unusual projects where they didn't know who to call. And that kind of became our claim to fame. Call us when you don't know who to call. Consequently, we got a lot of very unusual, but a lot of very interesting requests over the years. We uh, let's just talk about the breakfast cereal thing for a little bit because you, it's. Uh, I'm thrilled to find out that you came to Magic through breakfast cereal, but you produced so many great cereal boxes with Magic tricks either in them or on them for General Mills, a local Minneapolis. Uh, uh, General Mills, we also did a lot of work with Quaker. We would only work with one cereal company kind of uh, at a time uh, and some things through post. But, you know, the, the whole thing of having an incentive in a box or, or whatever, a children's product, it gets back to uh, a thing that technically is called in the industry the nag factor. And it's the kids saying, mom, mom, I've got to have this because it's got such and such. So I think overall with magic alone, we've done about 2 billion premiums over the years. We, uh, so again, I apologize to the families out there and everything for hopefully, or for not hopefully, but inspiring young magicians, all because of that nag factor. Do you remember what the first one was? I think we did a magic set for uh, for 3M and it was called the Invisible Man's Magic Set. Uh, I think we designed it and the whole thing. And then uh, after they had a quite a successful run for it, they wanted to redo the kit, but in the colors of scotch tape, green and you know white and all of that. And for years, uh, because we, even though we designed all of the stuff in it, uh, we didn't print it. I never saw this green and white kit. I had to buy one on eBay a few years ago. <laughs> so, it, you know, I found out it does exist. So uh, that's kind of fun to look at eBay or whatever uh, the auction websites are and say, I did that thing. Not only did you do that thing, but someone's selling it for a good deal of a money. Lot of money. Yeah, because it's in mint condition. Oh, what was the first cereal box magic promotion? I think it was the uh, uh, magic kit for Lucky Charms. You know, if you think about it, so many of the cereals kind of have, have magical themes. Lucky Char uh, Charms is magically delicious. Tricks are for kids. Of course, you have the rabbit with that. And so that connection leads to you know, a lot of opportunities with a, a lot of a variety of things. Of course, there are things that you do with the cereal itself. You know, moms have been telling kids for years, don't play with your food. But then you go into the focus groups with the moms and they're saying, we don't want our kids playing with their food. And then after about 20 minutes, they say, you know, we really don't care if they play with it as long as they eat it. That's the key thing. We've worked with a variety of uh, kids' food products. Now we're in development of a whole line of nutritional foods that we have doctors from the Mayo Clinic who are consulting, child psychologists who are consulting. Uh, we have a line of food that you can play with called Snacktivity. It's kind of a, it's based on the McDonald's Happy Meal concept that give them something to play with. So we've taken the packaging 
not added costs, but we've added value with some of the packaging. So if they play with it once and then throw it away, at least they have, you know, it's it's not just a package they're throwing away. There's some value and fun in how it looks. We have a little foosball table that's actually built in, into the box. And the, the sticks that, you know, control the players are, are made out of the same paper that popsicle, uh, that uh, lollipop sticks are. So crazy stuff. We play a lot in our business, <laughs> but we play very hard, guys. Yeah, I bet. I bet you do. Uh, what a niche, really, uh, to, to find and uh, mine the way you have. How long have you been doing this kind of work? Magicom, which is the company, that started in, I think, 76. So uh, um, anyway, 46 years is, is how long. I knew at an early age I was probably unemployable. And, <laughs> you know, no, it's true. You you have to say, oh, my gosh, how are you going to make a living? And so, uh, but it is a niche. But, you know, it, it's no different than a lot of things. People are still looking for that element of magic and fun and amusement in their life. And so it's just a matter of kind of pulling it together and, and making people smile or inspiring them. You know, both Jim and I have had a lot of experience in the meetings and events business and in client meetings when ideas come up and the process of getting the brainstorm idea, the best idea. And I know that in my case, I'm often in a room with technical directors whose first instinct was always to say, no, nope, can't do that. That's not possible. No, that's not possible. With your background in magic, I get the sense that your response when given a weird request is generally, hmm, I don't know, but there's probably a way. You know, we hear no a lot, but yet you have to look at it this way. Really in the world today, no is the easiest thing for a lot of people to say. There aren't a lot of people who want to take a chance, but those that do are, you know, they're golden because if you don't take a chance, you don't advance. And companies like Amazon who've made it such a, a mission to, to advance and Target. Target is great at, you know, taking something and moving it forward. But again, people saying no is not, is not uncommon because it's, it's strange, it's different, it's unproven. And uh, so the risk takers out there are, are few and far between. Even after 46 years of doing this, where you can demonstrate success after success after success, after success, there are still people that are looking at you and saying, no, that's never going to work. Jim, between the success and success, there are a lot of failures. Too. <laughs> you forgot that. You forgot that line. But, you know, it, it's like anything. Early on, we approached the NFL and said, hey, we have this concept for a Super Bowl halftime show. You know, back in the 70s and 80s, every magician wanted to have his hour special on one of the networks. And people like Doug Henning and Dave Copperfield certainly did. Our approach was, gee, you know, selling a half hour or selling an hour show was tough. But if we had something that we could guarantee ratings with, thus we zeroed in on the Super Bowl and said, maybe we could redo that and reposition it for the NFL. Uh, but we were up against 
big competition, Radio City Music Hall and the networks and movie studios. But we said, all of them are going to have great entertainment, but let's go in with something that's interactive. So instead of people getting up and getting a sandwich or going to the bathroom during the halftime show, they'd have to watch. Maybe they'd win a prize somehow. Well, we developed this whole strategy and the NFL was a company who said, yes, we'll take a chance. There were 20 companies competing, but they saw this as something that could bring in a new audience. Uh, back then, women and kids weren't watching the Super Bowl as much as, you know, it was a male-dominated event. That luckily opened the door for us, and, and they've continued on that, uh, that platform uh, for years. So it's, it's very fortunate for us. And, uh, and it worked out pretty well for them, too. How many Super Bowls did you produce, Dan? We did two, and uh, uh, the NFL wanted us to take the, the opening ceremonies and kind of make that into another event. Because, again, they realized that not everybody participating in the game, whether watching it on TV or, or in the stadium, really was a football fan. So they wanted to make sure everybody had something whether it was entertainment or watching the guys beat each other up on the field. Uh, so that was great, great fun. And Jim Steig, who ran the Super Bowl for the NFL, was a chance taker. And, and that's the great thing. For us, the thing that really is exciting is when we show something and we get to the point where we go, they go, wow, I've never seen anything like that. That's absolute nirvana. Jumping back to cereal, or I, I found this thing online called the Magic Secrets Video. All right, well, your expression, your expression tells me a lot right there. Where did that come from, and, and what was the promotional Pamela purpose Anderson of it? Also, Pamela Anderson also has a videotape. <laughs> Yours is much funnier. Yes, and I'm clothed. So, so where'd that video come from? What was the purpose of it? We also did that for General Mills, and it was in the early days that home video was really coming into be. Everybody had a video uh, player, or a lot of people did. They were, you know, wanting to collect videotapes. So, I mean, how many times can you watch Animal House over and over and over again? But uh, we convinced them, well, you know, kids love magic, and there's a lot of magic that can be taught. Uh, I learned mostly from books at the public library. So we convinced them, uh, let's do this video. Uh, and we had a budget to work on. We shot it in Hollywood on the soundstage, the whole thing, but, you know, full video crew and everything. But the part that really worked especially well, we had pup puppets, a lot of the characters. We hired a voice impersonator to do the voice of, the Tricks Rabbit and Lucky the Leprechaun and all of the different characters. And the real claim to fame is years later, General Mills couldn't get one of their voice talents to do some commercials. He was sick or had laryngitis. So they hired the same fellow that we used and uh, he worked for them for many, many years. So, so sometimes you know, good can come out of those little surprising things. And uh, how did you develop what tricks were going to be taught in that video? Well, you know, so often as a kid, 
uh, you'd get a magic kit. And there were some very, they, they were usually the same basic tricks, the cups and balls and, you know, the little magic ball base. But some of the tricks were really difficult for a kid to understand with just illustrations. So we said, if we could bring it to life and then first show the trick and then say, here's how it works, they could go back and watch it again and again. You know, the video world has opened up a lot of that. And now, of course, so much of it is on YouTube and that type of thing. But still, to be able to go back and to, to look at it from a videotape standpoint and rerun it if you have to, that, that really makes it much, much easier uh, as far as a way of learning magic. Well, I thought it was the parts that I saw were charming. Oh, you're that charming. That's a good word. Lucky charming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, the bad jokes continue. So as the years have gone on, and you did, I think you said, was it 2 billion promotional pieces yeah, have gone out? Over 2 billion, and we lost count. So. All right. Like I said, we've we've heard from a couple of magicians just in, in our very uh, select interview process that they were inspired by the promotions that, that you came up with for the cereal companies over the years have you had magicians approach you and say hey thanks for getting me started that is the fun thing because uh that has happened quite a number of times and you go like i say on one hand my first thing is to apologize and <laughs> I'm sorry, you know, you didn't pursue the, the baseball or sports career or that type of thing. But it really is uh, kind of fun. You know, it's like anything. It might be the hook that whets the appetite, but then it's the world of magic and the, the ability for a kid. I think it's very empowering any type of magic you can do. Because, I, again, I was a chubby little kid and... Uh, you want to be able to do something that you're accepted by your friends. And I think in high school, it saved me from getting beat up because uh, the seniors would go, you know, oh yeah, you're, you're the magician. Hey, you know? And so, you know, magic is a way to, it gives you a talent to do something other people can't do, no matter how basic it is. So let me ask you this. Where where does magic sit in your life right now? You know, magic is a constant. I have to say, we couldn't do really what we do without that background. It's not so much a performing thing, but uh, we've incorporated into basically Magic Commons an innovation company. We work with corporations in developing new products and services. So like for the Mayo Clinic as an example, uh, nobody wants to be in the hospital, any hospital, no matter how great it is. So using magical techniques, it still has all of the equipment that you would see in a hospital room, but it's hidden uh, using magician's techniques for concealment. And we can actually dial the room in such a way that it, uh, the, the colors on the wall and the artwork and all, resemble your bedroom at home. So it really is a way of making it much more comfortable for the people there. We're working on a lot of things for retail. Do you remember, um, we all know flash paper, you know, it light it with a cigarette and poof, the big flame appears. 
There was also a thing sold in magic shops called Dissolvo. And bookies used to use it to write down you know, their clients because if the feds came in, they could take this paper and it would dissolve in, in water instantly so they could get rid of the evidence. They were known for flushing it down uh, uh, in the bathroom. Well, we, uh, Target came to us and said, you know, people hate those stickers on fruits and vegetables. So uh, what can you do? Well, we actually used a, a, a natural version of dissolving material, printed it with organic inks, which were derived from fruits and vegetables. Even the adhesive is natural, but we infused it with a citric acid, which is lemon juice or lime juice and a powdered vinegar. So if you rinse it, uh, the label dissolves on the fruit or vegetable, but it cleans it so you can bite into the apple or pear or whatever you have from that standpoint. We couldn't do that without the magic background. And it is kind of magical. I mean, it disappears. Yeah, Dissolvo is uh, to have thought of that, to have taken the the magic knowledge in that instance. It's uh, that's why he's been so successful is coming up with ideas like that. Because who who in who among us has not spent an inordinate amount of time trying to pick the label off an apple? Here's a better way, and uh, we've Dan Witkowski to thank for that. You, did I ever tell you, John, that uh, I was doing a show as a very young actor? I'm going to say 1984 maybe 85 at a local theater here the history theater so you must have been six or seven at that point yeah, thank you i appreciate it. it's very kind of you but I, I in that show there was uh it was all about ghosts um in saint paul in in famous mansions in saint paul and at the end of the show somebody that we thought was a real person through all of this turns out to have been way before uh, uh the sixth sense we had that ending somebody that we thought was real turned out to be a ghost and the way we found that out is she sat down in a chair and pulled a cloth over her and i pulled the cloth off and she was gone <gasps> and uh they hired dan's company to come in and build that illusion and teach us how to do that so i i met him and had a chance to interact with him and i've known him since then and he's a heck of a guy and what a fun conversation yeah, he's delightful. Uh, I like his expression. I don't know if it's unique to him or if he got it from somewhere else. The idea, if you don't take a chance, you don't advance. Yeah. And, and the the willingness to just, uh, as he said when we chatted with him, you know, not everything succeeded. We're only talking about the successes here. And then um, the, the willingness to go out and just try ideas is, uh, I think, what's made him so successful. It's that Wayne Gretzky line. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. He's a great guy. And, and as I say, <laughs> now, if you want a piece of that magicana from our childhood on the back of a Lucky Charms box, you can find them on eBay and they're going for big bucks. Yeah, they are. Uh, if you want to look at one of the commercials from back in the day, uh, just check out the show notes. We've got a commercial about some magic found in a Cheerios box. And we also have in the show notes that video we talked about, which is an hour long video. General Mills presents the magic secrets video that dan hosts and it is for you 
HR Puff stuff fans out there, it has that same sort of uh, trippy quality to it. It's really, it's really, really fun. That's uh, both those things. You can find those in the show notes. Um, now, I don't want to be the king of the segues, but we got to get to it because we're yeah. not doing just one chapter, John. We're doing two. We are doing two. And so I need you to uh, get a sip of water. We're going to listen to uh, chapter 20 and chapter 21. So I'll just bring us up to date as to what happened in chapter 19. Very nice. In chapter 19, Eli is getting ready to uh, be the guy on camera who pulls the trigger for the bullet catch that they're shooting. They get in place to do it. Uh, and Eli goes in and talks to Jake, who is just really depressed because he is sure that somehow or other he is going to die during this. And that takes us right into chapter 20. The Bullet Catch, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter 20. Quiet on the set, please. Even though I had been on the movie set enough to have heard this phrase dozens of times, I was still amazed at how effectively and instantly it worked. An immediate hush fell over everyone, cast, crew, and extras, as Walter took the megaphone from the assistant director. He fumbled with the on-off switch and managed to create a screech of feedback before the assistant took it back, adjusted the volume, and pointed to the talk button and handed it back to Walter. Good, people, Walter said through the megaphone. We need to get this in one, one single uninterrupted take, not ten, not two, one. He looked up at the sky for a moment, then pressed the talk button again. The sun is in the perfect position, but that moment is fleeting and we must seize it and seize it we shall. Our time is now. His ersatz version of a motivational halftime speech concluded. Walter handed the megaphone back to the assistant director and took his seat behind the video monitor. The assistant director announced, Places, please, through the megaphone, and there was a flurry of activity as cast, crew, and extras took their positions. I found my mark, a small piece of blue tape on the ground, and the other extras gathered around me, forming the audience who would be witnessing Terry Alexander's final performance. Off to my left was Stuart, wearing a bright red poncho. A day's growth of beard had been added to his baby face, but it did nothing to dispel the look of eager anticipation in his eyes. Stand by, please. Rolling the assistant director announced through the megaphone. Off to one side, the sound man responded with, We have speed! Squatting behind the video monitor, Walter nodded to the assistant director who held up the megaphone and declared, Action! And suddenly, it was happening. The crowd was applauding Jake, who was making a flourish after finishing an illusion in the middle of the village street with the help of Noel. He spoke in a practiced Spanish monotone, explaining what his next trick would be. When he got to the Spanish phrase for the bullet catch, la bala captura, the crowd murmured in anticipation. Jake moved quickly through the crowd, the camera crew following in a tightly choreographed series of movements. Jake first pulled Arnold, dressed as the village sheriff from the crowd, Several words in Spanish were exchanged, and, from my perspective, Arnold had morphed seamlessly 
into a cynical, small-town sheriff with a chip on his shoulder toward this performing gringo. After a short exchange, the sheriff produced his gun from his holster. He opened the cylinder and poured all the bullets out into his hand. Jake pulled one from the open palm, and the sheriff placed the remainders in his pocket. I looked at the bullets he was keeping and the bullet he was giving away, and as Arnold handed the gun to Jake, I detected a humorless glint in his eye. But before I could look closer, things were in motion again. It was all I could do to keep my eyes on the gun, the selected bullet, the rejected bullets, and the blur of hands as the exchanges were made. I was so caught up in the action, I was actually surprised when Jake reached in and pulled me from the crowd. We locked eyes, and for all the world, for that moment at least, I felt I was staring into the desperate eyes of Terry Alexander. He spoke quickly to me and to the crowd, gesturing to the gun and to the single bullet in his hand. Noel produced a marker and indicated I should sign my initials to the casing. As I did, Jake again spoke to the crowd. Most of the words went by too quickly for my mind to translate them, but I did hear the Spanish equivalent of marksman, Franco Tirador, said in a questioning tone. On that cue, Stewart's hand shot up, and I could see the camera crew had expertly anticipated the action, putting him right in line with Jake. The camera spun from Stewart to Jake, holding on him for a long moment. For a second, I thought the scene had gone south, but Jake shouted, See! And the crowd cheered while Jake gestured to Stuart to step into the street. Noel pulled me along, and I joined the two men a moment later, putting the final touches on placing initials on the bullet casing. In honor of Harry, I had used the initials H.M. I handed the bullet to Noel, and she handed it to Jake. But did she? It was out of my sight for a millisecond. But I knew a millisecond was all it would take. But before I could react, the camera spun around the four of us in the middle of the street as Jake quickly recited what was about to happen, pointing to the bullet, to the gun, to Stuart, to a glass window which had been erected in the middle of the street, and finally to a point several yards on the other side of the piece of glass. The camera was moving so fast and Jake was speaking so quickly that although I was standing still, I couldn't help but feel a little dizzy due to all the action around me. I had tracked the bullet from the moment Jake had taken it from Arnold, and even though I had held it in my hands, for just a brief second I suddenly had doubts about it. But it was too late to stop. Noel handed the bullet to Stuart. Jake opened the cylinder on the gun, and Stuart inserted the bullet, showing the audience he was filling only one of the cylinder's chambers. Jake closed the cylinder, and the crowd was so quiet, the click of the cylinder snapping into place sounded almost like a clap of thunder. Jake bowed low and dramatically as he presented the gun to Stuart. Then he turned and almost ran to the end of the street, tapping the glass in the suspended window as he passed it, to demonstrate its veracity. All the while, he yelled instructions to the crowd in Spanish. Once he'd hit his mark at the other end of the street, 
He waved to Noel, and she started the countdown chant. The crowd immediately joined in. Diez, nueve, ocho. As rehearsed, I stepped behind Stuart. He raised the gun, taking aim at Jake on the other side of the suspended glass. I held my breath, not by conscious choice. I was too nervous to actually breathe. Siete, seis, cinco. The chanting of the crowd grew louder. I squinted to get a look at Jake, but his image was distorted by the distance and the piece of glass between us. The rhythm of the chant was matching the beating of my heart. My mind raced through all the steps, checking and rechecking, uncertainty beginning to cloud my vision. Cuatro, tres, dos. I heard Stuart cock the gun, and from where I stood behind him, I noticed his hand trembled slightly. He reached up with his other hand to steady his aim. My mind flashed on a headline in tomorrow's Hollywood Reporter. Actor dies in indie incident. I shook my head to clear the image just as Stuart pulled the trigger. Uno! The gun fired, and in nearly the same instant, the glass shattered. Seemingly, at the same moment, Jake was propelled backward, slamming into the ground with great force. The crowd cheered as we all moved toward him, Noel running from one side, me from the other. Stuart stood frozen on the spot, unmoving as I passed him. Noel and I were the first to reach Jake. He was sprawled on his back, either unconscious or badly dazed. A small trickle of blood oozed out of the side of his mouth. But that was nothing compared to the mass of blood that covered the center of his chest. I could feel the crowd racing in behind me and the gasps as people saw Jake's prone and bloody body crumpled on the ground. I looked over at Noel, and despite the horror of the situation, I had to admit it, she nailed both her scream and her scream face. Her preparation had clearly paid off. A moment later, everyone was screaming. Chapter 21 He's dead, Stuart yelled. The sudden use of English threw me for a moment. I turned to look at Stuart, who turned right back at me, pointing a trembling finger in my direction. The magician screwed up and now he's dead. He killed Jake. He's dead. Stuart turned to the crowd, which was moving in on us as he continued to shout, near hysteria. The magician screwed up. Jake has been shot. He's dead. He spotted Walter waddling toward us and the crowd parted to let him through. Stuart stumbled toward the director, grabbing onto his shirt. Do you see what you did, Stuart whined? Did you see? You and your stupid ideas and your stupid changes, and now a man is dead. You as good as killed him. Walter stared at Stuart for a long moment and then looked down at the body. There wasn't supposed to be blood, he said quietly. I know, I said, and yet there it is. That's right, there it is, Stuart said, grabbing Walter's shoulder. Stuart trembled in front of him, panting in near tears. He's dead and it's your fault, he said. Walter slowly shook his head. No, he said, 
Yes, it's your fault, Stuart hissed. No, I mean, he's not dead, Walter said quietly. He's fine, he gestured, and Stuart turned to look. Jake was just getting up, wiping dirt off his arms. He looked up and smiled his million-dollar smile at Stuart. Not a scratch on me, he said as one of the production assistants handed him a Diet Coke. But, but, Stuart stuttered, lurching toward us. What about the blood? What about all that blood? Yeah, what about the blood? I asked. Where'd that come from? Oh, that. That's just the squib under my shirt. You know, a blood pack. Jake waved at an older man seated in front of a small table off to the side. Henry over there set it off remotely at the same time the bullet was fired. Henry tipped his hat to Jake and then began to reset his machinery. I thought it would add a bit more verisimilitude, Jake added, taking a deep sip from the pop can. But you were shot, Stuart continued, his eyes scanning wildly, clearly trying to put all the pieces together. I switched the bullet! I switched the bullet and you were shot! I approached him slowly. Yes, you did switch the bullet, but it didn't matter because before you switched the bullet, I switched the method. Stuart gave me a pained, puzzled look. You did what? You see, when the audience thinks they have an idea on how you do a trick, a lot of times a magician will do the trick again, but using a different method. Gets them every time. But I shot him, he said again, looking from me to Jake and then back to me. I switched in a real bullet and I shot him. Do you need him to keep saying that? I shouted. No, we got it the first time. Homicide detective Miles Wright stepped out from behind one of the ramshackle sheds on the edge of the street. And you got it as well, right? He looked at the sound man, whose recording equipment was still rolling. He pulled off his headphones. Yeah, we got it, but there might have been a plane, he said, looking up and scanning the empty sky. Can we get another one for safety? How did you know it was me? Stewart's voice had lost its whiny edge, but he was still out of breath from the recent dramatic events. Homicide detective Miles Wright had just read him his rights and was in the process of putting the handcuffs on him. I honestly didn't know it would be you, I admitted, although you were certainly acting suspicious. This remark produced a snort and a head shake from Detective Wright. I wasn't really certain that anyone was going to attempt anything, I continued, following the two men as Wright pushed Stuart toward a waiting squad car. Certainly there were people with motives, but that didn't necessarily mean they were going to try something. You switched the method, Stuart mumbled, shaking his head sadly. When did you switch the method? Right after the last rehearsal. The only one who knew was Jake, because he had to handle half the slight while I handled the other half. I made it as foolproof as I could, I added, but that's hard to do when you're not quite sure which fool is going to try something. You can say that again, Detective Wright said, skillfully guiding Stuart into the back of the squad car. He shut the door and turned to me. Thanks for the tip on this one. Thanks for believing me, I said. Given the events of the last couple of weeks, Wright said, a nice solid arrest like this one will make a certain assistant DA I know very happy. And how often does that happen? You can answer that better than me, he said with a grin. Well, give her a hug for me next time you see her. Wright just shook his head and shuddered 
and then turned and headed toward his car. Champagne all around, Arnold yelled to the small assembled crowd. That better be domestic champagne, Donna said, making it clear by her tone this was a joke on her part, but that there was truth behind it. That's a contradiction in terms, dear, Arnold responded just as the cork popped on the first of what looked to be several bottles. The only place one would find true domestic champagne would be in the Champagne province of France. And regardless, we have much to celebrate. Fill your glasses, everyone, and then I'll offer a toast. More corks were popped. I looked around at the small group of actors and key technical people who had been invited by Arnold and Donna for a parting celebration before the group officially disbanded. We were all standing in what had been the video tent, but the monitors, cables, and cords had already been removed and packed onto one of the grip trucks. Outside the tent, crew members were wrapping cables and packing lights into cases, getting ready to move on to the next show. Once everyone had a full glass of champagne in their hands, Arnold stepped to the center of the room and raised his glass. When I first started in this business, he said in his booming voice, Oh no, we're in for the long toast, Donna cut in. Arnold acknowledged the laughter and waited for it to subside before continuing. As I was saying, when I first started in this business, I had a great mentor and teacher. You would know his name if I said it, but he was essentially a private man. He taught me three things about being a successful producer and, for that matter, a successful human being. The mood in the tent became respectful and quiet. Arnold played the moment, waiting dramatically before continuing. Number one, he said, turning and looking at each of us. Be the first one on the set each morning and the last to leave each evening. We all nodded in agreement at this. I heard Noel whisper to no one in particular, Yes, he does that. He really does. Number two, surround yourself with people smarter than yourself. He smiled at his self-deprecating remark, and this produced a murmur in the group as we each silently acknowledged we did in fact feel smarter than Arnold. And three, never capitalize your equity on investments that include mutual funds, but always sell short on anything but oil and gas. Before we could fully grasp this idea, Arnold plowed forward. But the biggest lesson I think I learned on our production is one I will take with me for the rest of my life. I believe it was Margaret Mead who said, Oh, Lord, help us. He's going to quote Margaret Mead, Donna said. Run, save yourselves. We all laughed, and Arnold joined in, but only grudgingly. Once we had composed ourselves, he scanned the room to make sure it was once again safe to speak. As I was saying, he said, Margaret Mead said, and I'm paraphrasing here, a small band of thoughtful people can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. Will we change the world with our little movie, our story of one man and his demons? Perhaps not. But will it make a difference? I think it might. He raised his glass, and we all followed suit. To our small band of thoughtful people, 
He toasted, and we all said cheers and took a sip of the crisp, cold champagne. And now a special moment of thanks to a visitor to our set and the man who made today's final shot not only one for the record books, but one that will be the delight of the entire PR team behind this movie, Mr. Eli Marks. He lifted his glass again, and the entire group shouted, Hear, hear! And, Arnold said loudly, still holding court, one final word about the missing member of our little troop, the troubled and misguided Stuart Claxton. Everyone hushed, and we became respectfully quiet. Arnold continued, I don't think any of us understand just how difficult it is to be a writer and part of this creative process. There is, I would argue, no one more impotent than a writer on a film set. And not just on a film set, Noel said to no one in particular. This produced a huge laugh from the group and then from Noel, who suddenly realized that she had said that out loud. And while we're thanking people and acknowledging everyone, Jake said as he stepped forward, I just want to take a moment to thank all of you for putting up with me on this shoot. I know I was a pain some of the time, but like our friend Stuart, I was dealing with my own demons, not the least of which was the delusion that there was a secret plan afoot to actually kill me in the last scene of the movie and use the subsequent flood of publicity as a marketing platform. He started to hold his glass up, but noticed the stares he was getting from the group. There was a long moment of cold silence, and then Donna turned and punched Arnold hard on the arm. Idiot, she hissed at him. That's brilliant. Why didn't you think of that? A moment later, she broke out laughing, and then Arnold joined her, and soon we were all laughing at Jake's silly idea. I looked across the room at Donna and Arnold, and although they had started the laughter, they seemed to be exchanging a look of regret at an opportunity missed. Or it might just have been my imagination. It was late by the time I got home, and I could see that the lights were off in the magic store as I parked out front. As I pulled out my keys to go inside, I noticed a large cardboard tube resting against the door. My name was scrawled on an envelope taped to the tube. Once inside, I turned on the light by the cash register and opened the envelope. Inside was a stiff white card with embossed edges. In a spidery scrawl, I saw the words, For Your Consideration. It was signed, H. Lime. Setting the note aside, I uncapped the cardboard tube. At first, it looked empty but I repositioned the opening toward the light and saw something tightly rolled up, clinging to the inside of the cylinder. I was able to pry it loose and pull it out without tearing it, and I unrolled it across the top of the display case. It was a poster for the movie Laura, and by the look and feel of the paper, it appeared to be an original. Illustrations of Gene Tierney and Dana Andrews stared out at me, with smaller images of Clifton Webb and Vincent Price balancing out the frame. I looked at the poster for a long time, not sure why he had sent it and why he thought I would want it. Like everything else with Mr. Lime, it was a movie reference, but its purpose eluded me. I carefully rolled it back up 
and inserted it back in its cardboard tube, shut off the light over the register, and made my way through the dark shop to the stairs. The lights were on in the stairway, and I could see a figure seated on the steps halfway between Harry's apartment on the second floor and mine on the third. Hello? I said tentatively as I made my way slowly up the stairs, wondering how I could turn the movie poster tube into a makeshift weapon on short notice. Buster, a voice said, and I recognized it as Harry's, but he sounded uncharacteristically tired. I tried to call you, but your phone was off. Oh, yes, sorry, I said. We have to turn it off on the movie set, and I forgot to turn it back on. That's all right, he said softly. It runs in the family. I reached his doorway and looked up at him. Are you locked out? You know there's a spare key in the store. He shook his head. No, I'm not locked out. I continued up the steps toward him, noticing he looked very small and alone on the narrow staircase. Is everything okay? I climbed two more steps and we were now eye to eye. Buster, your Aunt Alice taught me, he said quietly. When you have to give someone bad news, you must warn them first. Okay, I said, not at all sure where this was headed. He ran a hand across his face, and it continued across his head, doing nothing to calm his unruly hair. He looked me in the eye. He had clearly been crying at some point in the evening. Max he said finally. Max died. That's sort of a sad ending uh, in that it's chapter. A- it's it's one of the few times that a semi-minor character in the Eli Marks series dies yeah. of natural causes. A lot of people. Yeah, but not uh, this is uh, Max. Max just died, which was an important thing to have happen. I think uh, it, it. I think it brings uh, Eli and Harry closer together, and it kind of reminds Eli of his responsibility to Harry. Uh, but also, we heard the the single take shot that they did uh, to get the bullet catch done, uh, which has my my one of my favorite things that always happens if you're out shooting film or video or anything. At the end of what you say was a perfect take, the sound person will always say, "I think I heard a plane. Can we do another one?" I've been there. I've yeah, been exactly I'm sure you've been there a lot where it's like, yeah, I nailed it. And they want to do another one because they, they thought <laughs> I heard a plane. Yeah, yeah, very, very nice. So so that's two chapters. And that felt just fine to me. Oh, good. All right. Well, that's good. Well, next time around, we'll just be doing one chapter. Uh, but that throws our numbering off. So it'll be episode 221. But we're listening to chapter 22. Uh, uh, what if we call it uh, episode 221B? <laughs> Only. Well, as as we heard uh, in our interview with uh, Nicholas Meyer, the uh, the Sherlock Holmes people are very litigious. Uh, so I don't, I don't want any to... trouble. You're absolutely right. Bad anyway, idea. we will we will uh, listen to chapter twenty two. We we know the the bullet catch mystery for the movie is solved, but we still don't know uh, who killed Trisha's husband, and that'll take us in the last few chapters. And in that uh, next episode, again, episode 221, chapter 22, we'll continue our How to Build a Better Magician theme with an interview with a couple guys who run an actual magic school. Hogwarts. Well, close. It's uh, Jeff McBride and Tobias Beckwith. Oh, that's fantastic. They founded the Magic and Mystery School way back in 1991. And you've been there. You've you've taken the classes. Yeah, I, I spent a week there when Eugene was still, the Eugene Berger was still the dean. 
of uh, the, the mystery school. I uh, I spent time there. It's it's really really cool and different than any other magic event that I've ever attended. Way different. It, uh, we I, hopefully we'll get a chance to chat about that in the interview. Yeah, it's interesting. After talking to uh, all the magicians we've talked to, uh, some who are teachers, to to take that next step and talk to uh, people who run an actual school and the way they do it, it'll be really fun. And I'm just thrilled that uh, Tobias and Jeff uh, found time to chat with us. Anyway, that's going to be in our next episode. Like I mentioned, you should check out the show notes for that uh, Magic Secrets uh, video, which is so much fun in the TV commercial that shows magic on a cherry's box. Follow up with Jim's suggestion to go on eBay and buy yourself some actual cereal boxes from the 80s, because why not? What better way do you have to spend your money? Coming up next, hoarders, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, yeah, it, uh, it's certainly fun. And I will absolutely check out the show notes because I'm interested in uh, both of those pieces, largely because um, I'm a geek. But the other reason is Dan Witkowski is a pretty cool guy. He totally is. That's it for now. We'll see you on the next episode. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.